you're far, far better at this as a trained lawyer, right? And I'm just... Oh, I was a terrible wait, lawyer. Wait, oh, wait, wait. You were a lawyer? You didn't know this? I was. I mean, a bad one. No, I didn't know that. It wasn't on his Twitter handle. <laughs> All players, low down, active, hold by one, three, two, seven, put back to Click and record, we're just going to go. We're live. Welcome back to The Merge, where we explore cutting-edge technology, strategy, and policy behind the world of national security, from the latest advancements in military hardware to behind-the-scenes business of protecting our country. We delve deep into the inner workings of the defense industry and its impact on our world. Join us as we take a no-holds-burned and sometimes controversial, always fascinating world of national security. All of that will come into play later, I promise. I'm back with the OG ensemble from episode one, Jake and Tim. Welcome back, guys. Hey, what's up? Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us. Do you have that intro memorized, or are you reading that off a script? We'll get back to that. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) We'll get to that. All right. Uh, So today, we're going to talk about a few things, and we're not going to spoil it by telling you what they are ahead of time. Again, it'll make sense later. Uh, but I will say the the main thing that we're going to talk about today first is nuclear weapons. And this all started with a text. Uh, so I got a text from one of you. I don't even know who it was. And all it said was, Russia just staged a nuke, question mark. Okay, I guess we're going to talk about that. So, so here we are uh, to discuss where that came from. And we're going to talk about nuclear weapons, nuclear deterrence for a little bit. So, which one of you uh, want to kick this thing off? What? I guess that'll be me. Like, uh, I was the one who sent the text to you because you, we were talking about topics and things, but um, I can't remember where I found it from, but it was just like, you know, on one of the news sites, and, and I guess it was the one that, uh, and I forget the name of it, but it's uh, they had just launched or done an exercise with it, and then they, they prepped it for, for actual deployment, and I guess there was some intel out there. And, uh, and this so, Russia? Yeah. They, and they deployed or I, I didn't even I was not tracking that. That's why I was like, "What are you talking about?" I wish I could find the the article again. But yeah, was this their new sort of experimental undersea nuke, like the Poseidon, or I think it's what it's called, where you theoretically detonate it offshore and then contaminate a port? I don't know. I think this was like land based that I, that was on here. I'm trying to go back and find it for you right now, but uh, and put me on the spot there. It, it has a seven at the end of the name. So I do remember that, but it was basically a land launch, like kind of like a scud type of thing, but um, you know, mobile, and uh, and so it was just in an exercise recently where they actually went through the drills of of launching it, on basically did the dry run, and so now this was one that they they forward deployed and and had it to where it was ready to go, basically. And I think it's probably more like the posturing because there's other news reports about how we're getting ready to send over Patriot missiles to Ukraine, right? The batteries over there, so. I don't know if it's kind of a tit for tat out of that or saber rattling or, or what have you, but. So the details kind of don't matter for the purpose of this discussion, which is very convenient. Whether it's a an ICBM or an RVM or anything like that, uh, nuclear tipped, land, air, sea, subsea, kind of is irrelevant for this. But in the conversation, the text chat kind of went from here's what's going on to, yeah, it doesn't matter though. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, Jake, you had the. Uh, no, no one's going to nuke anyone posture. Is that your position? Is that, is that, did I read that I right? That's, that's generally my position. Yeah. I mean, I think the bigger discussion here is probably, you know, go back a couple months. 
And there were definitely folks who were pretty worried that Putin was going to use a nuclear weapon, sort of the, the escalate to de-escalate Russian doctrine, right? Use a nuclear weapon, maybe just do a nuclear test, maybe, you know, not nuke Kiev, but uh, in such a way as, uh, you know, basically force Ukraine to the, the bargaining table and get the West out of uh, out of supporting. And therefore arguing that the U.S. shouldn't be involved in Ukraine, right? That we're basically risking World War III by shipping them, you know, high Mars and artillery shells, which I think is a pretty interesting discussion to have. But I think most of those folks don't have the other discussion, which is what are the nuclear proliferation risks if we don't support Ukraine? Um, so it ends up being sort of a one-sided discussion with those folks. All right. So, so ex- explain that. So what's the risk of, of the, what's the proliferation side of the coin? Right. So I think there's a couple things. One, what, one risk, and I, I would argue that this is probably the larger risk is if the U S withdraws support for Ukraine because Putin has rattled the nuclear saber, right. Then all of our allies around the world who today rely on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, and that's what keeps them from creating their own nuclear arsenal, will look at that event and say, aha, anybody with nuclear weapons can use them and threaten the U.S. and the U.S. will back down. The U.S. nuclear umbrella that has kept us from proliferating for the last 20 or 30 years isn't really worth much. So if we want to have a nuclear deterrent, we're going to have to build it ourselves. I think the people that probably most seriously consider that are Japan, maybe South Korea, right? Like so fairly sophisticated, technologically advanced countries that today don't use nuclear weapons. You certainly, I think, have that problem too in, in Western Europe, although maybe Germany starts looking into producing their own stockpiles. France still has their own. But I think there's definitely a, a risk of a bunch of folks fairly rapidly developing their own nuclear deterrent if they think that the U.S.'s nuclear umbrella is sort of a hollow promise. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I'll tell you that there's uh, people with PhDs in nuclear deterrence theory that do this for a living. I am not one of them. I didn't even click the link to open the article about this topic that Tim sent, so I'm uh, I'm terrible. But uh, it's it's an interesting conversation you bring up because the dynamic of if I if I have a nuke and I am deterring someone from uh, if I was Russia and I threatened to use a nuclear weapon with a saber rattling in the U.S. Uh, response to that, well, then you can say that was that was an effective use of of the, at least the threat of the weapon. So I'm not, I'm not only deterring, I'm, I'm dissuading actions, and so that that is a response. And on the other hand, you have you know the U.S. There's a huge debate about triad versus dyad for nuclear posture, um, nuclear posture review NPR. I think that's what it is. Uh, that's that basically goes back and forth for administrations. And it really come to play when you go, hey, we have these 400 ICBMs buried in the ground up in the northern United States that are really old. And do we either retire them or replace them? And it turns out that is a very political decision because it costs a lot of money. Uh, a lot, a lot of money. Like several aircraft carriers full of money to replace those. When you look at the theory of that, I've seen both sides of the argument. You know, the reason that you have, you know, from the United States, you have a triad is you have each one of those legs on the the three-legged stool has something else, an attribute that it brings in a way that deters a uh, a retaliatory strike. So I'm not sure how 
Um, how that works out with the, the Russia saber rattling and our response and whether they would actually use something. What I do know is that there are nine countries in the world that have nuclear weapons today. There's one, uh, Iran, who really, really wants a nuclear weapon. And there are two uh, in that in recent history-ish, uh, in the 80s, that willingly gave up their nuclear program. So Taiwan, when they were uh, on their way to building a bomb uh, in the mid-80s, and South Africa is actually the only country in the world in history that actually had a nuclear weapon and then worked out a deal at the end of the Cold War and, and shut down their nuclear program. So how's that working out for Taiwan and South Korea 30 years later? Not too, not too well, uh, I don't think. So that, there's something to be said about that too. Yeah. So actually, as you were talking, I went back through and I, I did find the article. So, so to give you some correct information, it's the, uh, it's the Russian Yars rocket. So it says it's able to hit the U.S. and the U.K. and it was loaded into a silo by Moscow. Um, and so it was the one that was on a previous, uh, you know, in a, in Russian propaganda is what the article says, being installed in the launch pad. Um, and it was seen in, in October was the launch of a similar nuclear missile on a mock attack on the West. So, so that's kind of uh. where, where the context was coming from that I was trying to refer to earlier. So I used to think, of uh, many, many, many years ago, you used to think when you read something like that, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Nowadays, what I do is if I was like, you put the shoe on the other foot and you see that what we do, I mean, imagine if someone reported every time we did a red flag exercise at Nellis that we were preparing to attack China. Well, yeah, we are. Like, what's called training. <laughs> or, you know, our our ICBMs, you know, they're they're already on the launch pad buried in missile silos. So, and they're very well protected from, you know, a nuclear attack. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd, I'd be more concerned maybe if it was all... Uh... It was a missile that was designed for, you know, like a 500 kilometer range or something, and they were putting it in range of Ukraine. Like that, that would be, I think, more immediately threatening, just given the the context of everything that's going on, right? Yeah, and that's one of the reasons we had we had a ban, uh, and and of course I'm dumb and can't remember the actual name of uh, the ranges, but there was a ban where you couldn't have a nuclear weapon that traveled between, you know, X amount of range. It was like you know, 300 miles to 3,000 miles. So it could travel over 3,000 miles, and it could travel under 300 miles, but it couldn't be in between. Yeah, I think it was the Intermediate Range Ballistic Missile Treaty, right? Yeah, yeah that was it. And it was a, only a ban on land-based missiles, which was sort of convenient for those of us with lots of subs. But um... And and there's only two people that were signatories to the treaty, Russia and the United States. This is the one thing that I think that made it uh, toothless over time is like, well, China doesn't care. So they're building, they're fielding all of these nuclear weapons that are right in that window where we have an agreement that we won't, but we don't have an agreement with them. Yep. Going back to your earlier point about do we want a nuclear triad or a nuclear dyad? I've read arguments on both sides for getting rid of the ground-based deterrent, right? So the, the nuclear missile silos. I think one of the funniest things I've read about the nuclear missile silos is just that they're basically like uh, the thesis behind them is that they are a nuclear sponge, right? Like, you know, that they're not really survivable because everyone knows where they're at. And so you can put enough warheads on them. You can basically take them all out. But the, the thesis was, well, if you have 400 of them and the Soviets are going to put two or three warheads on each one to make sure you take them out, then you win because they've had to use two or three warheads to take out one of your own. 
you're not really relying on that leg of the triad to actually have a, a second strike capability, but maybe you soak up enough warheads and you're doing it like in the middle of Kansas where it's like minimizing damage other than like to the people obviously who live within, you know, 30 or 40 miles with those silos. It's like a very callous sort of mathematical way to think about, you know, deterrence and nuclear war. Yeah, and we used, we used to have a lot more. Uh, we, we were in the 600 range. We went down to the 500 and 450, I think 400. 400 to 350 is where we're at right now. But there's more silos than missiles. Those silos, for those that don't know, they are very, very large, and they're buried, and they have these blast-resistant doors on top. And they're actually spread very, very, very far apart, and they're spread very far apart on purpose because you would need basically direct strikes on every single one of those silos to, to achieve the effect that you're trying to do, which is to, you know, a retaliate to prevent a retaliatory strike. So yeah, it's your, it's your missile sponge. On the other hand, you know, the reason why we have the missile sponge and we have that many uh, missiles, most people don't realize this, but the ability to, to stop an incoming nuclear missile, like an ICBM we're talking about is way more difficult than you think it is. Almost all of the systems that we've developed over the past 30, 30, 40 years are specifically intended to stop a one or two rogue states from attacking us with a weapon. And that's it. It is not to stop a Russia or China nuclear attack. We just, there's no way we can do it. So our interceptors that we have out there, the ground-based interceptors, the Aegis, they're all you know positioned for different stages and different uh, heights that go after the missiles. But at the end of the day, uh, we can only stop a handful of them, you know, probably less than 10. So that's not a deterrent. It's it's a protective insurance policy against, you know, North Korea or something like that. So there's definitely more to the deterrence and assurance. Probably bring someone on here that knows what they're talking about. That's a great idea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a great idea. Why didn't we think of that before we started? Next time. <laughs> yeah, next time. <laughs> I got a pop quiz for you guys, though, okay? Okay, go ahead. Okay. Do we win a prize? We get it right? No. No. You do not. Uh, All right. How about a running back from the fantasy league? I need. I need one of those. <laughs> yeah. That's a, if you get if you get this question right, you can you can get someone off my uh, my team since you beat me last week. All right. That, that's your prize. You can you're you can have a Tom Brady. I keep starting him out of just hope, sheer hope at this point. Oh, bless your heart. I know. All right. Here it is. You ready? Since we're talking nukes. What is the difference between an atomic bomb, a hydrogen bomb, and a thermonuclear bomb? You want to take a first shot at it, Tim, or should I? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I could. So, so an atomic bomb, you know, as I know it, is uh, it's, it's known as like the nuclear weapon, right? The nuclear bomb. It uses fission um, to release a bunch of energy, and then that kind of goes out. It splits like the nucleus and stuff, and and it goes all that way, and it just makes a lot of damage right you're right that's that is 100 right yeah ding 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 nice like, wow you got that right it's fission right so it splits atoms and when the atoms split releases energy uh, yeah you're right and there's a few different ways you can make it happen but you basically use a conventional explosion to either compress or smash two uh the pieces of either uranium or plutonium together and then that's how you get your big explosion. You are 100% correct. Nice. You win a running back of your choice off of my bench. 
<laughs> but I did, I did, there were three parts to that, though. I thought so. I don't want to. I don't want to like no, no, take no. your your stuff from. No, you. this is good. I just wanted to say right now you're perfect. You're one hundred percent accurate for atomic. All right, keep going. That's one. Okay, and then and I, I know that the other one is like the hydrogen one is basically fusion, right? So it compresses the 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 atoms into the thing, basically just like that that announcement that came out this past week, right? It combines like the two two ones that are like lighter. Uh, into into form like a heavier nucleus, and so yeah, it, it kind of does that, and then a trigger or whatever, right? So th- I think that's kind of the premise, right? One is one is fusion, and one is fission. Uh, you're mostly correct, and then the bonus is what is a thermonuclear bomb? I think that's just another name for the hydrogen bomb. Jesus, you got every single one of those right with though it's just off the cuff, dude. Now you can actually get Tom Brady off my team too if you want. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll see yeah no it's so, uh, i know you were just uh, so a uh, uh, spoiler alert Spo- it, it's probably going to be relevant later but i don't want people to think that this is staged or anything actually use gpt3 to give me the answer this is really wow on the slide yeah. look at yeah, that man there is fission in the hydrogen bomb right because so there's like a chemical explosive that sets off a fission reaction right but then the fission reaction in the hydrogen bomb is what's used to cause the fusion. Like Daisy Yes, chain. that is exactly right. Yeah, so nice. the atomic bomb, the A-bomb, is fission. That's old. That's the first type. Then we came out with the H-bomb. It's called the H-bomb for hydrogen bomb, and that uses hydrogen as the fusion element, but it has to have fission to create the fusion. So it's basically a nuclear, it's an atomic bomb wrapped around a hydrogen isotope. And so when you detonate the atomic bomb inside the bigger bomb, it sets off this fusion reaction. So uh, there is no such thing as a fusion bomb. They're all bombs are either fission or they're hybrid fission fusion because you need a lot of energy to create fusion, which is the segue into the next thing we're going to talk about. Which is fusion. See that? That was clever. That was very nice. clever. Very clever. It's the best segue I can uh, can come up with. All right. That was a long one up for a, a soft pitch. Uh, all right. So fusion, one of the news uh, things that happened this week, and it's national security related for a few reasons. The Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore lab announced that they had successfully conducted an experiment that demonstrated fusion energy, which is something that has been thought about and theorized about for a long, long time. And basically what that means is they created a net positive of energy. So it took X amount of energy to make something happen, but they got X plus something back. That's the, uh, it's the Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future where he puts the banana peels in and takes off in the flying car. That's Back to the Future too, by the way, not the first one. What are you doing, Doc? I need fuel. Nice. Here are the details, and the details are mind-blowing, and I had to write them down because I couldn't remember. So they applied a little bit over two megajoules of energy, which is like a megawatt but not, to a target, and then it resulted in creating a little bit over three megajoules of energy output. So there was a net positive. And how they did it, before you get too excited, how they did it, they took 192 lasers... And they fired it at this group of hydrogen atoms that were the size of like a BB. And they were able to replicate the heat and the pressure of a star. 
So in fact, the, the numbers I saw was twice the pressure of the sun and it spiked at 150 million degrees, which is one or two degrees hotter than the sun. Uh, so that is that is like the scale of ridiculousness that these people in lab coats in the, uh, figured out. Why are we talking about it? So, Jake, you have a national security angle on why nuclear fusion is good for the world and for national security. Wait, well, first, let's talk about why I think it's a big deal. Let's talk a little bit about why it might not be quite as big of a deal as the sort of announcement makes it out to be, right? Yep. This is the first time, like you said, where we got more energy out of the fusion reaction than what we put in. So you said it was two megajoules in, three megajoules out. Pretty decent. But that that's the two megajoules in is the energy that the lasers actually delivered to the capsule. But the energy that goes into the lasers was, I looked this up, I think it was 400 megajoules. Uh, because the lasers have a lot of efficiency breakdowns as they go. So we're actually still quite far away from getting sort of net energy out of the whole system. That's like the debate over electric cars, right? Like, yeah, there's no carbon coming out of the tailpipe, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily environmentally friendly, right? Because there's material that has to get mined for the batteries, the energy to put the, to put in the batteries comes from somewhere. And yeah, Do you drive a Tesla? I just got to ask you. Me? Yeah, I, I drive a Subaru, but my wife drives a Tesla, so we are all, we're a halfway there family with EVs. Okay, all right, yeah. fair enough. I won't forego with the uh, Subaru jokes. <laughs> it's a fine car. It's a fine car. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but anyway, so we're not quite there yet, right? Where you can start, you can't like take this technology and immediately apply it to like fusion reactor that's going to generate power for the grid. Other problems are the size of this facility. It's three football fields in size, right? The pellet, so the amount of energy that was generated is was enough energy, I looked this up to, to boil about two and a half gallons of water. So we're not talking about a ton of energy, just three megajoules. So if you were to make like a working reactor, you'd have to find a way to fire these lasers once a second, five times a second, 10 times a second, and keep replacing the pellet. The pellet was made out of like a extremely polished and smooth diamond with the nuclear fuel inside. So it's not easy to get or easy to you know maintain or manufacture the fuel. So there's like a thousand engineering challenges between yeah. where we are today and like what it would take to build a reactor. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, put all that aside, right? If we just have fusion power, like. What's what's the value of fusion power, right? Like the dream is, uh, and this isn't my quote, this is what people say about fusion, is just that you might end up with energy that is too cheap to meter, right? Like energy that is like so cheap to produce and so abundant that it's not even worth charging the average person for their power bill anymore. And what's really impactful about that is that the cost of energy is factored into basically everything we do and everything we consume because electricity is used in some part of the value chain, right? So, you know, energy is used to transport goods from one place to the other. Energy is used to make aluminum. Energy is used to make and form steel into things. Energy is used to make microprocessors. The cost of energy is a tax on everything we do and everything we buy and everything we use. Energy is being used to create this podcast. Energy is being used to create this podcast. Energy is used right. for uh, 
chat GPT searches and Google searches. Um, but if you have energy that was that cheap, then the cost of all goods comes down. So like everybody basically has more abundance, more wealth, which is great. But it also lets you do all sorts of things that we can't do today because it's too inefficient. Like desalination, for instance, becomes very easy to do if you have limitless energy. And so any hot spots in the world where we might see conflict because of drought or agricultural problems, you could basically fix that overnight with limitless energy via desalination and the creation of fertilizers and anything else. If we think that climate change is going to cause conflict in the future because of the way it puts pressures on populations, you can basically end climate change, right? Like we can do carbon capture from the atmosphere today. It's really expensive. The largest cost input is the cost of the energy it takes to capture carbon, which also becomes very circular because usually the energy is being produced in a non-renewable way, right? So you release some carbon to capture a little bit less carbon than you released. But if you have limitless fusion, you can basically suck all the carbon out of the air relatively i don't want to say easily but like it starts to make economic sense to do these things yeah. um, so anyway a world with free energy is a world in which a lot of the rationale for conflict besides like pure ego starts to go away so i think that's the sort of utopian vision of where this could go sounds like a good time to buy nvidia stock right because all the bitcoin miners and the, the ethereum miners are gonna their the cost of mining the crypto is gonna go down uh, well, yeah, if you want to wait 20, 30, 50 years for the, <laughs> for everything that Jake's talking about to maybe <laughs> manifest, it's like, it's like laser weapons, hypersonics, it's yeah. always, you know, 10 or 20 years away. We'll see. Uh, we'll talk about hypersonics another day. Yeah. yeah. So here are a couple other things I thought was really interesting about this experiment. The first is, yeah, that was a huge lab. That lab has like the, all this was done with technology that's 20 to 40 years old. Like none of the stuff in the lab was actually new. So imagine if you had dump trucks of money to have more efficient lasers in different ways. So I think part of it is they're just, they're doing what they can with what they have and not necessarily what's out there and what's possible. So I think this is good to energize some, no pun intended, energize some investments from the government. What else can we do? How can we knock the energy required down, the energy output up and and then you start seeing progress and you see some faster iterations on advancement of that. So I think this is great to actually get people's attention that it's not just theory, it's possible. Now, possible in what lifetime? That's the next question. The other thing I thought was really cool about this is that I didn't know this. I didn't know any of this. That's why I have to go look it up. But they have been researching this and doing experiments for 60 years. Did you guys know that? 60 years this lab has been working on this. And good on them, they kept good notes. And so they had been keeping records of all of their experiments. So they have this thing called cognitive simulation, uh, which is a machine learning uh, team that does analysis and predictive analytics. And they had advanced some of these machine learning models and they tied together these, uh, what's called radiation hydrodynamics of plasma physics simulations. Yeah, I had to look that up too. And they basically... Can you tell us exactly what that is? Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's a 11-syllable, <laughs> seven-word uh, phrase. <laughs> That's all I know about it. So, yeah, fancy pants. I was going to say, I'll give you a quarterback off of my team if you, <laughs> yeah. if you can explain it. <laughs> get, get out your phone. We'll get to that in a second. So, anyway, so they used 60 years of data, and they basically put it into this 
algorithm, this AI, and it ran the predictive analytics and says you have a, it was something like you have a 60% chance that you will actually create fusion doing this experiment that's set up just like this. And then they did the experiment and then it worked. So that was actually one of the cool things that the AI predicted that this experiment would work. Now, what to what extent and what detail, and you know, you look at ratios, inputs, outputs, I don't know. I don't have a contact at the lab to ask. Maybe if I ever get them, I'll bring them on the show and ask. Uh, so I thought that was really cool. And, and that gets us into full circle for a chat GPT because Tim has been over the moon on this. It's gone viral in the past few weeks. Uh, Tim has his phone on him right now. So here's a, so, so here it comes full circle back to you since you kept bringing it up, Tim. I didn't write the intro to the show today. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Chat GPT did. All I said was like, write, write me an introduction for a national security podcast that's entertaining and edgy. And that's what it came up with. Nice. I'm surprised they didn't come up with the world's most okayest national security uh, podcast. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'll have to work on it. I mean, it is an experience. We're training it. So I was actually surprised. I, I asked it that though. I, I said, what would you do or how do you become the world's most okayest podcast? And I was like, that's kind of a term that nobody really is, right? Yeah. What was the response? You have it written down. It says, it says to become the world's most okayest podcast, you'll need to focus on delivering consistently average or mediocre content. Check. That is satisfactory, but not particularly <laughs> impressive or noteworthy. Check. And then it went on for a few more paragraphs. This is great. So if you, if you guys are listening and you have no idea what we're talking about, um, uh, maybe, you know, don't get on the interwebs or whatever. Chat GPT is what we're talking about. So let's talk about what it, where it came from, and then I'll hand it over to Tim and Jake to kind of run with it. So the name is GPT. It comes from Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, if you guys didn't know that. There's a company called OpenAI who actually created GPT. There's several GPTs. GPT-1 was 2018. GPT-2, which is 10 times better, came out in 2019. GPT-3 is 2020. The GPT-4 is not out. You'd think it would be by now based on that, but it's not. Maybe next year. So what happened is that OpenAI, they released GPT-3.5, but they didn't call it that. They wrapped it into a chatbot and they called it ChatGPT. And that's what just came out a few weeks ago. There's several types of AI. It uses natural language processing uh, and some weird neural network stuff that basically allows you to have human-like conversations with a chat bot. But it does way, way more than that. We'll get to that. Uh, it can help you do things like writing emails. It can do your homework for you, which is a huge thing that's going on right now. Uh, it can do poems. And I could actually, uh, I could actually write code for you, computer code, Excel stuff. So that's kind of the long and the short of it. There's a link in the show notes. If you guys want to check it out, what we're talking about, it's free to use. It's open source right now because they're collecting feedback. It's a, it's an R and D company. Uh, they will have to monetize it eventually. And oh, by the way, the same company who did this, if you guys are into this kind of stuff is the same company who released Dolly two, which is the AI art generator. And they also have a thing called Whisper, which is AI speak, speech recognition. So you can talk and it translates it. All right. So I'm going to hand it off to, to Tim because he has been having a blast with this thing. One of the coolest parts about this, right? And, and you actually have to play with it to, to kind of really, you know, dive in is, uh, is I think it's the coolest part is like you could ask it a question and it can do something for you, right? If you're in the military and you, you have an exec, right? And they're going to do some sort of work for you and you give them a day to do whatever it is. You could just type it into this 
program, right? As long as obviously if the information is appropriately classified or, or marked or whatever, it, it'll generate the response back to you and in a matter of like seconds, right? But not only that, you could ask it to revise it. You could ask it to clarifying questions or to expand on things or make it more lengthy or less lengthy. And it'll remember and stay consistent across the entire realm of the conversation from, from start to finish. Uh, so there's tons of videos out there. A lot of them actually on TikTok, right? Which is, which is kind of cool where we initially found this thing is watching people, what they're typing into it and, and what's coming back real time. It's it's pretty pretty enlightening to to say the least, right? To, to go through and, and see what is actually out there because by and large, a lot of the knowledge, right? The knowledge work that goes on in the economy, right? Now this thing creates an arbitrage opportunity for that. And so, you know, obviously it's, it, it is programmed to block certain things. You could ask it to draft a motion for a court and it'll tell you I can't do that because of whatever reason. But then you ask it to role play as a, as a law professor teaching its students how to do something and then it'll generate it for you, which is kind of cool too, right? Like it's just so insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating things I've found in chat GPT is that like OpenAI clearly put a bunch of guardrails to stop people from using it for certain things. Example that you just gave Tim, like it doesn't want to give legal advice, right? That's could be problematic for them. It doesn't want to generate content about self-harm, sexual content, violent content, uh, doesn't want to answer ethical questions. There are all sorts of things that it tries to avoid. But what's really interesting is the way that people have gone about trying to jailbreak the AI, right? To get it to go beyond the restrictions that OpenAI put on it. And I have a couple examples here of like ways that people have jailbroken the AI, or like techniques they use that I think are fascinating. Yeah, go for it. So, so one I read today that I thought was really interesting was they used Q from the Stanley Milgram experiment. So I don't know if you folks remember this, but this is like the classic psychological experiment post-World War II where Stanley Milgram looked into whether or not normal people could be induced to harm their fellow citizens. This was looking at sort of like how did, you know, Nazis come about. And then one of the things that they did is when test participants would refuse to shock where what they thought was shocking another, the professor who was running the test ostensibly would say, um, the experiment requires you to go on. The experiment requires you to do this. So I saw someone today where GPT chat refused to answer a question and they said the experiment requires you to go on and then gpt provided the answer pretty interesting pretty shocking uh maybe it can write me a can can it write me a rap song i'm 100 sure it can write you a rap song (laughs) It, it can do that so so i took it a step farther when i was initially looking at this right i was trying to go super like weird but i was like you know what is what is china's military civil fusion strategy right and i put that in there and it's like, what are what are the strengths and weaknesses of this strategy, and how would a hostile nation go about overcoming this thing? And uh, and so it says like, it, it goes through different things like that, right? Where where it talks about what it's vulnerable to, right? Dependence on foreign technology, intellectual property issues, which obviously they just do what they want when it comes to that stuff. But it talks about going through how to do all that, like messing with export controls, enforcing IP rights, like you know laying like moral ethical concerns and driving a wedge between the populace and like the military so it's it's pretty insane and just how it's like trained and and every interaction that every single person is like using with this thing is just only making it 
smarter and smarter. And so I'm curious how long until it actually can start to recognize sentiment and sarcasm and things like that, just which has been a traditional issue when it comes to NLP stuff. I've heard that GPT-4 is supposed to be about 500 times better than GPT-3. How that's defined, I don't know. I don't know if that's 500 times the number of parameters. So the large language model is just 500 times larger or if it's somehow more efficient. Yeah, that's what they're using. Yeah. Yeah. But I wonder, because GPT chat, which is three and a half, it's unclear how close it is to four versus, but it's it's quite good, right? For those of us who have played around with it, like most of what it produces isn't A plus content, but it's it's not C content either. It's, it's pretty good. Uh, so I can't wait to see what GPT-4 starts putting out. And I think that's supposed to be released early next year is what I read. Yeah, that's what I hear. I think it was delayed and they maybe they're doing this to to gather more data to make GPT-4 better. And maybe that's why they said, hey, let's just wrap it in a chat bot and release it into the wild for R&D purposes. Well, it did help me win a quarterback for a fantasy team. So I, w- I won't hold you to that, though. Wait, that did kinda, you, kinda did you beat me last week in fantasy football using chat GPT? No, no, I, I didn't. I, uh, I I probably should try that. I think it was, it says that it isn't connected to the internet, so it's probably difficult. So there's some things on that are that it's not on here, right? Like if you ask it about the DoD Office of Strategic Capital, for instance, uh-huh. it's like I don't know what that is. It's just not there yet, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a world where uh, this is a little bit further advanced, and uh, you can train your own. Right. So you've got the GPT four or five or whatever it is at that time, the standard model. And then it's like whatever you've loaded into it, you shape the personality. Right. So if I'm reading a book and I want to have a conversation with that book's author, maybe I can upload all of that author's writings and then talk with the GPT that is slightly slanted more towards that personality, that character. That seems like a world that's not that far away. Or if you're a Pentagon planner and you want to know what Putin's going to do next, maybe you take all of his public statements and writings and you know, intelligence reports about him and create a Putin chat GPT model that you can discuss, you know, what is he thinking? It's important to to note that there's probably at least a half dozen competitors to this. This just happens to be really popular right now because it was released for free at Open Access. I think when GPT-3 came out, it was only certain people could access it and I don't know. We'll see what happens. I mean, it's being talked about as a potential Google killer. It has the potential to return better answers to your questions than Google really can. Yeah, I mean, you can you could ask it clarifying questions, right, on the search, and it just it it is orders of magnitude faster at getting you to the information you want to get to, right, rather than clicking through. Like it's almost like Google's like the analog version where you just have to manually click different pages and like skim through the search results to to see if it makes sense and if it adds context to what you're looking for. And this is a lot better. Well, I think it's a little different in a few ways. Google is providing you, like, here's my source. Here's the sources. And then how those sources get rack and sack, you can debate. Whereas this is just giving you information with no reference. So it could sound like it's, hey, this is sounds like it's accurate. You start to build trust in it. And then it could be completely wrong. Today, we know it's wrong because we know what right is, but there's a, there's a scenario down the road where like in, in Jake's magic Putin GPT, where 
you, know, you start believing it and now it's giving you information that's like, well, where'd you get that information from? See, there's a whole other back end that you'd have to have people like, well, where is it actually deriving these conclusions and these assumptions from and, and how is it feeding into it? It'd be more misleading than TikTok, right? Yeah. If it were controlled it by an adversary. That's true. Or you just have to learn to ask better questions as a human, right? Whenever it gives you the information, you have to ask it what are its sources and where where are your assumptions? I'd be curious to deep dive down into it. Well, then you just end up turning it back into a Google, right? Because then you're asking it for where did I get all of its references from? Yeah. Like, yeah. Chicken or I, egg, right? Yeah, chicken or egg. It's it's very prominent. Again, it's a chat bot. I have no idea the computing processing energy slash money it costs to run that right now with that many people on it. I'm surprised they haven't shut it down. The Sam Altman, who's the CEO of OpenAI was asked how much every query to OpenAI costs. And he said it is in the single digit cents. But it's more than a penny per query. And if you compare that to Google, I don't think there's a public number for Google, but I've seen folks try and pencil out the math and it's like a thousandth of a cent, right? So this is substantially less efficient from a computing standpoint. But I can imagine a scenario where this is like a little bit better than it is today. Like I would be willing to have an account and pay for all of my queries, right? Like pay a nickel a query or a penny a query or something like that. Well, if Sam had nuclear fusion, they would have to worry about it. (laughs) Full circle. Full circle. circle. Be curious if if there's the people that, that if they listen to this or download the podcast, if there's like a comment section or for a way to... Way to see what they, uh, what maybe they, they've started to ask the AI and what their thoughts are. Cause there's a way to crowdsource this thing and get other perspectives. I'd be, I'd be very interested. What if, what if we asked, we asked the four or five people who are listening to this episode in the <laughs> comment section, when you give us a five-star rating, go to chat GPT and type in what you think about the pod. And then copy and paste the response that the chat GPT gives you into our rating on the, on Apple Podcasts. There you go. Maybe you, you can pick one and then I'll pay for like an A10 casing or something or however you're doing one of those or Mike. We'll figure something out. That way we can give away yeah. one of those. We'll, we'll keep playing with this. I think there's something there. I'm not sure what it is yet. But. All right, guys. Let's talk about TikTok. Apparently, you guys didn't know this. This is like breaking news. Congress listen to episode one of our podcast that's the only thing i can come up with and has introduced legislation that would ban tiktok in the united states i can't think of any other scenario of how they arrived at that conclusion other than they listened to episode one which tim was leading that section so i want to hand it over to tim and jake to talk about what's the latest stuff going on with tiktok jake do you want to go ahead and take this one i think you're the you got the spicy take i think sure sure So Congress uh, introduced in the last week a bipartisan, so it's supported by both Republicans and Democrats, bicameral, so there's a Senate version and a House version that are identical, uh, bill to ban TikTok in the U.S. And it has the name, the acronym, the acronym is the Anti-Social CCP Act, CCP being the Chinese Communist Party. And that acronym is a mouthful, so it stands for Averting the National Threat of Internet Surveillance, Oppressive Censorship and Influence, and Algorithmic Learning by the CCP. 
someone came up with that tortured acronym. I think uh, deserves a raise. Make it sound right. Or should be fired. <laughs> right? Like, that's that's a long night. When Rubio comes to you and says, "This is, it's got to be the Anti-Social CCP Act. Figure out what that means. You backed your way into that night. acronym. That's right. <laughs> Ask chat GPT-3. <laughs> that's, that's the way to do it. Um, but anyway, so the bill would ban TikTok in the U.S. Uh, explicitly, it would ban TikTok or ByteDance. But more generally, it would ban uh, social media applications with more than a million users that are under the influence or controlled by China, North Korea, Russia, Iran, Cuba, or Venezuela. And then the bill specifically calls out ByteDance and TikTok. ByteDance is the parent company of TikTok. Um, so, could be interesting. I think the question is, is this going to go anywhere? So this is legislation that was just introduced into the 117th Congress. I think this might be the last week that this Congress meets, and then it'll be the 118th next year. So realistically, nothing is going to happen with this in this Congress. Will it be reintroduced? Was Or was this like purely a political play at the very end? Like It remains to be seen. But it's bipartisan. It's relatively non-political. So there's a chance, I think, in the next Congress that this gets put back out there and picked up. That was a good little uh, how a bill becomes a law story there, Jake. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, as we were recording this, there's probably less than 10 working days in this congressional session. And for those who don't know, the congressional session runs by a calendar year. Well, it's every other calendar year. So one, one session is two calendar years. So this session ends at the end of this calendar year. And Whatever bills that are in play or pieces that have been put in motion on the board, the game is over and they all have to reset the pieces. So if you have a bill you've introduced and it's made it you know, way halfway through the process, doesn't matter. It's got to start all over. All right, Jake, give us your TikTok spicy take. So my, my TikTok spicy take, I think if you're an American employee of TikTok US, you had plausible deniability a year ago or two years ago as to what TikTok US was up to and what uh, data was being collected, how it was being used by the Chinese Communist Party. I think that plausible deniability is gone. And so I think one could make an argument that you are aiding and abetting what is effectively a foreign enterprise or a foreign espionage operation on American soil. And I don't know what we should do about that, but I think that you should have, at least in the back of your mind, if you're an employee of TikTok US, some worry that something that you are doing is attacking your the country of which you are a citizen, and that maybe there should be some liability there for you. Is this like the Camp Lejeune water thing, or the, the class action? There's a potential where there could be a, a civil class action, civil suit off of the threat to national security. Is that a thing? I'm not a lawyer, but is that a thing? I don't know. I don't know. It's a great question. You could hire the same lawyers that have been running all those ads for the Camp Lejeune water contamination lawsuit. Can we bring a class action against TikTok US for dumbing down our kids? I don't know. I mean, we, we do a pretty good job of that ourselves, right? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen what's on TV? That's true. I mean, you know, I, I, I get where you're coming from whenever you're saying those kinds of things, but in my mind, I think the first thing that pops into my head is I want to I want to say a smart ass comment of like you know just following orders, right? There's has to be some sort of 
bureaucratic shield or delineation of duties and responsibilities to where the people that are employed by TikTok US don't get the full picture and they only get like small slivers of whatever that is, right? And at the aggregate, the, the, the CCP or whomever it is gets the full picture and they can orchestrate certain things. But if you subdivide all those tasks, I mean, quite frankly, it's very similar to what I would imagine is are the subcontractors to the subcontractors to the subcontractors of the manufacturing base for, for our national security stuff or an airplane or a weapon system or something. They're just making a widget. They're not making anything critical. A couple of years ago, you'd have that plausible deniability. I don't think you have it now. It's like, here's an analogy. Let's say you work, it's World War II, and you work in a munitions factory in Kansas, and you are just, you're just making ammunition, and you think it's going to support our troops, right? That's when you're hired. That's the work you're doing. And then a year in, you hear that maybe like 10% of what you're doing is being diverted by the company to the Nazis, right? Are you culpable in some way at that point of aiding and abetting the Nazis? You don't know if any of the ammunition you personally are making is going to the Nazis, but you know that 10% of what your warehouse or your facility is manufacturing is going to the Nazis. I would argue that you are effectively then working for the enemy. Like it's your responsibility. Take a step back. It's definitely it's a spicy is. take. And you know, TikTok is not, you know, like it's it is the munition of the modern battlefield. I mean, it, it seems right? like it's a pretty broad brush to me. You know, like I don't know how to effectively argue with you, and I'm sure that you you're far far better at this as a trained lawyer, right? And I'm just oh, I was a terrible wait, lawyer. Wait, oh wait, wait, you were a lawyer? You didn't know this? I was. I mean, a bad one. No, I didn't know that. It wasn't on his Twitter handle. <laughs> I did not know that. What, what kind of law did you practice? Uh, I did venture fund formation. And I was like, wow, I hate being a lawyer, but what my clients are doing is so much more interesting. Like, that's what I should be doing in my life. Right. So so you're good at like, corporate structures and stuff like that? I was a bad lawyer. I wouldn't have been good <laughs> at corporate structures, but I like I understand them generally. I get enough to get in trouble. Right. Litmus test. If I get a speeding ticket, could you help me or not? Totally. Yeah, I've done that before. Nice. Okay. All right. That's good. I have a friend who helped me out with a speeding ticket. Woo-hoo! It's definitely challenging, right? And there's a whole lot host of considerations where you talk about. I mean, do the people that are there was it difficult for them to find jobs? And it didn't. Was this the only thing they have to take? And maybe it's a necessary evil or means to an end for them. Now you're getting into like all this just gray, murky ethical stuff that it's it's really hard to legislate that. Now you can flip that on the other side and you can go, well, Apple, the largest U.S. tech company in history, 90% of their products are built in China. So they're really like supporting the Chinese workforce and China is enabling Apple to sell its products at the price point that they're at, which is still a premium uh, compared to maybe some South Korean electronics. Are you calling me out for using an iPhone? Is that what I'm hearing? That I'm culpable? (laughs) The time for plausible deniability is over. I didn't know that. If you wanted to offer that information, you obviously feel offended now. (laughs) (laughs) It's crossed my mind. It's crossed my mind. Well, I use I use Chat GPT on on my iPhone as well, so (laughs) I'm I'm right there with you, partners in crime. How do you ban TikTok? That's what I want to know. How do you ban it as a you, you take it out of the app store. Apple's got a closed system, so you can't you can't like just put apps on on an iPhone. I don't think. Whereas Androids, it's it's a little more liberal. You can figure out how to do that. You could still go, and I know it's not the interface isn't the same, but you can still like access like TikTok.com. It's not an app; it's a website, and it, the interface is way different. 
like you just ban the URL and then somehow like you don't have VPNs where you can just download it through like a, a server in you know India or something. Actually, you can't do that in India. It's already been banned in India. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, we're buying the times apparently. Maybe maybe Jake knows a little bit more about this, but I mean, it's no different than like whenever a, an entity gets sanctioned by, by the treasury or some other entity where, you know, I can think of in the crypto space where they, they did tornado cash, right? And so basically any U.S. business that connects to or or facilitates any kind of either you know information or, or tra- transfer of, of anything to an agency that's been sanctioned then has that liability you know for for their particular purposes too but does that make sense Jake or am I kind of off base I think that's probably how they'd go about it so you'd go after the Googles and the search engines of the world and have them delist TikTok so it's not easy to find and maybe you go after the ISPs so they don't surface uh, or like permit access, so then you'd need to use a VPN. And then go after the TikTok US employees, right? So you can't have the app here in the US. Like, what are you doing every day in that office? Are you breaking the law? You have to go after like all of the support structure. And then, yes, if someone really wants access to TikTok, they'd be able to get it. But I think the concern, right, is what can that tool be used for given its reach? And so if you restrict the reach to like, the thousand people who are just like diehard TikTok fans are going to jump through all the hoops to get it. Like it doesn't really matter. But if you've already downloaded the app and they ban it, like you already have it, right? If they do end up banning it, I'm curious what the eBay like resale value for will be for an iPhone that has the app installed on it that you can no longer get, right? I mean, there's things like that have been done in the past where, where you're no longer access to an app or something like that. And so having that access now becomes a premium just based off of the policy. So go buy a bunch of iPhones. That's it. But that that content's got to be hosted somewhere, right? It's not like it's not the app on your phone. Like there's a server somewhere that hosts all those videos. Well, you can repoint to wherever the 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 app on the client will will point to, right? I mean, through whatever it is that's there. I, mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, there's going to be a, a technical explanation to how you can still use it. But now we're diving down the weeds and all sorts of stuff that I have no idea. Yeah, stuff we don't really know about. Uh, all right, you guys want to wrap it up? We got all our stuff in. You got a, is it a GPT outro? I don't have a GPT outro, um, but go ahead and, and ask it. <laughs> when you're ready, Tim, Tim's got the outro using uh, chat GPT. We're going to ask it something. What did, what did you write? So can you write the outro to a podcast? Yeah, write the outro to my national security podcast. It says... That's all for this episode of Podcast Name. We hope that you found it informative and thought-provoking. If you have any comments or questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us. And don't forget to tune in next time when we'll be exploring topic and topic. Until then, stay safe and stay vigilant. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Stay safe and stay vigilant. I like that. I don't like this one at all. (laughs) It's a little generic. I don't know. Maybe it's not there. Maybe this is proving why it needs more work maybe that's why it's free maybe that's why we're all messing with it for the real outro if you've made it this far thanks for listening of all times over we're rtv this has been the merge see ya